We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. For sure, bro. Like, it's kind of frustrating me when people talk about, oh, like, we wouldn't be able to su- survive in that generation. Right. And yada, yada, yada. But I'm watching that, like, I kind of want a piece of that, too. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like you know what I'm saying? Hey, we, we've, been in that, we've been in practice before. Like, you know how we get down. I know. Listen, that's why I'm asking, because I know, because I literally used to, like, with the people, like, I used to, like, I used to foul them so much on purpose. And they wouldn't call foul. Like, they weren't gonna call foul on me. And he used to get so like, yo, give me the ball more. Like, I'm like, yo, oh my God. Like, most people would have quit, but yo, he never quit. Yeah. And that was like, you know what I'm saying? The making's like, I, I seen it in you early. And that's why, like, when I watch that, like, to me, like, yeah. people built off that. You know what I'm saying? Like, for real. Like, yeah, it might change the game, but I love that, like, a lot of people, like, got that mentality. Like, I think surviving that era easily because you feel like that. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns Podcast. We are back. I guess we're on a once every two week schedule right now. We're going to try and fix that in the future once we have more of a clear idea of what we can and cannot talk about going forward. My name is Mike. I'm here, as always, with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. Apologies, guys out there. We have been a little bit lazy. <laughs> we're going to try to get back to more of a routine schedule. Um, but the reason I'm excited today is because I just love putting a voice uh, kind of to a Twitter account. 
And the guy <laughs> we're bringing on today is just a staple of the Suns Twitter community, a guy who's been always very good to both of us and has been amazing with all of his analysis and is most notably a draft guy. And neither of us are draft guys. We got plenty of time before the NBA draft. We don't even know when the NBA draft is going to be. So this will be one of many draft segments that we have, but it, it's only fitting to bring on someone of his caliber to start breaking down this uh, this upcoming draft class for us. Yeah, that's right. And so joining us is Brandon, who runs the Zona Sports uh, account on Twitter. Brandon, how are you doing? What's up, guys? Appreciate that intro. Um, thanks for having me on. I'm a huge fan of you guys' podcast. You do an excellent job of producing you know, consistently enjoyable content, which... Uh, I know it's not easy, and I uh, loved the last episode with Kellen. It was fun stuff, um, but yeah, I'm just excited to to do this. Let's get started. Awesome. Yeah, the initial idea was to have you on right before March Madness, uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and we were going to talk about who to watch in uh, March Madness, if anyone, and uh, trying to sort of hone our focus on like where the Suns are, are going to pick. It's gotten a little odd, of course, as we all know, the world has changed. We don't currently know exactly. The Suns are, are, are slated to pick 10th. Now, what I did want to just bring up real quick before we dive into the players to watch now on YouTube instead of March Madness. This will be who to look up on YouTube for Suns fans. Um, <laughs> I did want to mention that there is now, I heard this on the Bill Simmons podcast with Ryan Rosillo, there's now a financial incentive for every team to get up to 70 games played. And the reason that is is because the RSNs, which are regional sports networks, so for us in Arizona, it'd be Fox Sports Arizona. If the Suns season gets up to 70 games played, those regional sports networks have to pay out the entirety of the contract that they agreed to for the year. If it's any less than 70 games played, the NBA as a whole loses money. So there is a chance that the NBA works out some sort of scenario where the rest of the season is fully played out. So there's a chance that this draft positioning changes. I think that with this particular draft, and Brandon, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it doesn't matter that much. I think that the, the where these guys are slotted in is so fluid. Uh, how, similar, uh, how similarly skilled or at the level that people are rating these players, it seems like anywhere after the first few picks, uh, things can sort of slide dramatically between players. So it might not change as far as the players that we talk about that much. Uh, but just so you guys know, there could be some basketball on the horizon uh, that could change where the Suns are picking. Hopefully in the future, we'll be able to talk about some weird fanless NBA games taking place in Las Vegas or whatever the plan is. Um, but let's get into it. Let's uh, first talk about, I think, Brandon, what I want to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. There has been a lot of mock drafts or draft guides or whatever you want to call them online as there always are this time of year there is no consensus number one pick so i guess the suns are in the lottery there's a chance right there's a chance that they can get the number one pick if things fall their way who do you have number one overall uh in in the nba draft for 2020 who's your number one player yeah so right now i have Lamelo ball number one um Earlier in the year, I had Killian Hayes there, actually. Uh, he's, he's my number two now, spoiler alert. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm just huge on ball. He's, he's got a generational-type passing and an elite handle to go with it. And at 6'7", it gives him, like, a unique vantage point to see over the defense and make some of these passes 
Um, he thrives in transition, just makes quick, quick decisions. Like that's when he's most effective is when he's not hesitating and he just kind of gets into his, his jumper with a quick release. Um, obviously there's the defensive concerns. Um, but I also think those are a little bit overstated. Like people are acting like he's like Trey young on that end. He's not like, I don't think he'll be, um, a good, good defender at any point, but at the very least, he can be average or slightly below average, and the value he's going to bring to your offense um, should offset that. Brandon, I think there's sort of been a massive shift in just the way that scouts in general evaluate talent over the past half decade or so, and the expectations that we have out of our lottery picks. And because that's kind of the focus of, of where we are today, the Suns are, unless they trade it, unless they trade the pick, you know, which is something we could talk about, but most likely mm-hmm. the Suns are going to have a lottery pick. Talk a little bit about. Uh, your approach when it comes to scouting what are your expectations of a lottery pick uh, for the NBA and and kind of what are you looking at in these prospects that makes you say this guy's a a surefire lottery talent this guy's a top five talent or even a top one or two talent yeah that's a good question so I think in every draft it's it's different obviously because you're you're dealing with different uh, quality um, at each pick and um, you're just trying to find the most value no matter where you're picking and you're you're doing a lot of projecting just seeing where these guys you know, where they fit, like which, uh, translatable skills they have. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking for someone with like a high IQ and high feel for the game. I think that's a very undervalued, um, aspect and you're looking for, some, for someone with an explosive first step. Um, you need the ability to finish, uh, through contact. You know, I look at, does this player absorb contact or does he avoid it? Um, you know, shooting indicators, um, you know, so obviously for shooting, uh, their their shot mechanics um are very important Mm. and um you know shooting indicators to see whether or not they're um that's going to translate are stuff like their touch you know on floaters long twos free throw percentage um you know stuff like that so you know they can can they shoot off a live dribble can they hit pull-ups um you know just overall defensive awareness and you know steal and block rate are super important as well so it's just finding a balance between all of these and just um you know evaluating it as like a collective um prospect now a lot of people consider this a weird draft so there doesn't seem to be superstars in this draft and as always there could be some random guys that end up being uh mm-hmm. much better than we anticipated the the most famous example in the past of course is Giannis Antetokounmpo being the best player in the NBA picked uh you know a lottery pick but late in the lottery um what do you think do you think this is a weird draft do you think that it's top heavy at all or do you think that there will be a lot of good NBA players or do you think it's just a bad draft in general Oh yeah, there's there's going to be some random guy picked in like the late teens that's going to be like a star, and then um, I think you know the overall balance of this class is pretty weird. Like there's no there's not a Zion or a Luca or like someone that's going to change your franchise, but there's a lot of quality role players. And um, at the top, you know, my top three I think could all be uh, pretty impactful players and and have all star potential. But outside of that, it, I mean, it's it's a crapshoot. Like you're just going to be taking a gamble no matter where you pick. There's a lot of red flags with these guys and you just kind of have to like sift through all that BS and just figure out, you know, uh, it's basically just a guessing game with this class. It's, it's pretty, pretty, uh, unique class. Who's the third. So you have LaMelo, you have Killian. Who's the third one. Um, and then I have Anthony Edwards is my third. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not like thrilled with the fit in Phoenix for him. 
but um, obviously, you know, the reason I would be okay with it is just because of how desperately this team needs scoring and shot creation. So, so, yeah. so to me, all this talk about the strength of the draft class, right? It brings up a critical question because I've heard some people float this take, and I don't personally know if I agree with it because I don't know enough about the draft class, but. If you're willing to accept that this is kind of a weak class at the top, that there's not a franchise-altering player, but that maybe you can get a lot of value in that, say, 5 to 14 range, would you almost rather the Suns, like, that this wouldn't be the year the Suns win the lottery with their astronomically small odds to do it and get the number one pick if you have to pay a player who you don't think is going to live up to that expectation a starting salary of 11 or $12 million a year like the players who are getting picked in the top three uh, do these days you know would you almost rather have the the number eight the number nine the number 10 pick or is that kind of crazy talk no it's it's a good point um i think especially at the top of this draft um if you're taking a gamble on someone like Lamelo or anthony i don't think killian's gonna go top three just for the record uh you know wiseman's probably gonna be someone that's gonna be taken in the top three as well um but that's a different point uh to answer your question i think uh, I would rather obviously pick top three just from a point of, I think it's good trade value. Um, oh, yeah. but, but if you're not trying to, if you're going to commit to that player fully, uh, I'd probably, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable picking 10th right now. I think there's going to be a very undervalued player that drops to them there. Um, and they're going to have their choices there. Uh, having some flashbacks from previous drafts where, you know, the board played out perfect and they passed on someone not going to mention any names, but, uh, you know, that I think there's a very good chance in this class. They're going to have a chance to draft someone pretty good at 10 if that's where they're picking. So let's get into that then. So obviously, like I talked about draft boards are all over the place. You can't really find consensus throughout the, even in the around 10 where the Suns are picking. But when you look at the players that are likely going to be there in that 10 range, that, that pick range, uh, who do you look at as a player that would be the best fit with the Phoenix Suns just, just initially? So right off the bat, I think um, Tyrese Maxey really stands out um, for the Suns' specific needs right now just because I think he's one of the best uh, scoring guards in this class. He you know, the, he shot 29% from three. I think he's going to be a much better shooter than that. Um, he's shot a pretty high percentage from the free throw line. He has a nice touch, and you know his finishing was uh, pretty insane. So... Um, he reminds me a little bit of like a Lou Williams type offensively. Um, but he's not going to be a complete liability on defense. Like that's, that's the major pro with him. So, um, you can plug him in the sun's second unit right now. And, you know, we saw how, you know, desperate they were for like anyone to score right at times. Uh, so I right. think that's where he fits in. Um, my favorite long-term prospect in this range would be Devin Vassell out of Florida state. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm all in on him right now. I'm, I'm actually having him number five on my, uh, board, which is wow. pretty crazy high. Um, yeah, that is. And that From what speaks, yeah, yeah, that speaks more to like uh, this class than it does like how I actually value his impact, which is, um, you know, him and Okongwu are my four and five. And the reason I have them there is because I think they're both going to be, they're going to fill their roles out really well. And um, you're not going to be wasting a lot of money on someone that just completely busts. And like I said, that just speaks to where this class is as a whole. So just I, th- just I did not even know that was how to say Devin Vassell's last name for the record. That's how little Vassal? I knew. Yeah, yeah, I just assumed it was Vassell. And just to set the table a little bit, and sorry, Sam, to interrupt you here, but uh, yeah, you just chose a sorry. Kentucky guard. 
<laughs> yeah. Am for, I for the Suns. or what? Like, <laughs> yeah, Tyrese Maxey. Tyrese Maxey, for those who don't know, six three guard from Kentucky, um, and you know he averaged fourteen points a game. Devin uh, Vassell, um, the player that I'm also currently uh, in love with, just when I sort of read everything about them, is a six seven wing from Florida State. He's a sophomore. Uh, could be a very good player uh, as well. I just I just look at guys that sort of match the Mikael Bridges um, mold exactly. when you're when you're drafting, and he's just one of those guys that does. I just look at the Suns as a, as a team that has Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. Why not just draft the best possible defenders at this point if that's the core that we're going with? But, Sam, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 all good. I just kind of wanted to take us through a little process of elimination um, because you mentioned Okongwu. So, so first of all, you said you have LaMelo Ball 1, Killian Hayes 2, 3, Anthony Edwards, um, and then Okongwu 4. Where is uh, Weissman? on your board and also can we just like toss out Okongwu and Weissman as like even if these guys fell there's no way the Suns would pick the two best center prospects in this draft because of DeAndre Aiden or is in your mind is there like any conceivable chance of something crazy like that happening yeah no cross them off the list uh completely and now is there burn it with fire (laughs) is there anyone else because that's the obvious one to me but is there anyone else positions one through four kind of getting crossed off your list immediately for obvious reasons that maybe Mike and I don't see. Um, at this point, no. Uh, I think center is the one position they shouldn't use this pick on. Outside of that, it's fair game. Just take the best player available. Um, they have to fit your needs and your system, obviously. And uh, to get back on the Devin Vassell thing, uh, one of the reasons I like him so much is obviously uh, Mike alluded to the Mikel comp, and I actually like that one. I think uh, his measurables are a little bit um, – he has like a th- three-inch difference in wingspan um, mm-hmm. than Mikel, but he's a very similar archetype where he's just going to be a 3 and D wing that's just very smart, and he's not going to screw up a lot. And the Suns need that. They need players that just don't screw up <laughs> and play defense. So uh, just I want Suns fans to imagine a point book lineup uh, with Vassell, Mikel, Kelly, and Aiton. Uh, I mean, the mm-hmm. wingspans would just be insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, Vassell is one of the few guys, actually, that we were going to talk about that I already have a strong opinion on. I love the yeah. guy. Just to throw the stats to it, 18 points, 7 rebounds, 2 steals, and a block and a half per 40 minutes. That's what he's averaging as a sophomore. He's got a box plus minus of over 10 as a sophomore, which is very, very good. And, and statistically, the McHale uh, comparison kind of fits as well. He's just a great team defender, a uh, good work ethic from what I've read, and a, a real plug-and-play type of guy. Um, I guess just the defining question there is if you draft Vassell, and I'm all for it, if he if he drops to 10 or if he's available at 10, um, is, I mean, it brings back point book in, into the conversation, right? And, and you know, if you're going to play Vassell at the 2 and Bridges at the 3 and Ubre at the 4, it's unquestionably a, a very talented defensive lineup. Um, we still haven't quite gotten any indication, I feel like, of just how far this organization is willing to push point book uh, in the future, because Ricky Rubio, I mean, we've we've made arguments for Rubio as being the team's MVP on this podcast this season, at least I have, with the type mm-hmm. of impact he's had um, and his type of ability to make the players around him better. That's not to say that Devin Booker can't, you know, doesn't still have the, the ball skills to be this team's point guard in the future, but you are kind of pushing yourself in that direction if you take Vassell. Um, and I know Monty Williams has said he's interested in experimenting uh, with more point book, but do we actually think that, you know, that could ultimately be this team's fate in, in another year or two? I, I just don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, I, I think uh, with Vassell specifically, 
Um, if, you, if you're taking him, it's not like the end of Ricky Rubio by any means, especially because he's not going to be starting right away. You're going to probably just use him off the bench, just his wing depth. And that's something they desperately need. I wrote the, about this on uh, Bright Side of the Sun. Just um, right now, they need a versatile wing that can cover, like, because whenever uh, Cam, Kelly, and Mikel, like, if one of those guys are missing or two of them are, like you saw last year, like the bench, like the three guard lineup, please. I like my eyes. I never want to see that again. So um, that's where Vassell comes into play. Like he'll just be an ultimate glue guy. Um, Like you said, best team defender in the entire class. You can run him in stints with uh, Booker um, point guard, but also use him in the second unit. Mm -hmm. And I think he has some underrated um, off the dribble shooting that doesn't get talked about enough. Like um, kind of like Mikel with his playmaking, how that's been kind of flown under the radar a little bit. And he's shown flashes. I've seen the same with Vassell with his, his jumper. Like, if, if he can put together like one or two dribble moves off the dribble, then uh, his value is going to really skyrocket. Yeah. So yeah, that was going to be my next question for you, because like that's you were saying at the beginning, that's how you evaluate talent, right? Is guys who can attack closeouts and um, Vassell, the, the only weakness maybe that I would point at, you know, he has a pretty low free throw rate and hasn't traditionally been maybe one of those guys that's that's attacked in that way. So what do you see as his ceiling? Is he just a plug and play three and D prototypical guy that's getting drafted a little bit higher than most of those guys would because it's a weak class, or do you see kind of high starter level potential out of him? Uh, yeah, I think he's just pretty much a high floor guy. Um, his ceiling, I, I don't think he has like the highest ceiling. He obviously has some limitations. Like you mentioned, he's, he's not really seeking out contact. He doesn't attack enough and he doesn't really have a quick first step. So um, he's going to really rely on his, his length to shoot over guards and, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, if you're taking him top 10 and he's going to just be a prototypical three and D wing, then, uh, it'll be good value in this specific class. Um, but in a typical draft, this isn't someone you, d- you want to draft until about, you know, probably the nine to like 12 range, I would say. Yeah. Right, right where the sons are picking. And I think yeah. I, I've, j- I've just gotten to the point with the draft and I think I'll preface everything with, I'm not a draft guy, but <laughs> Uh, I just I can't watch the Bill Simmons of, I just of can't. draft analysis here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why we have guests. Um, but I just feel like if you have the feel on defense, the the real feel for the game on defense, that means that you're likely a high effort player willing to put in the work to get better. It also usually says that a player in college, if they're already in that position, that means that they already understand what makes them good as a player. They usually understand their place, their role. Um, And with Devin Vassell, he's also uh, known as somebody that's a pretty good passer for his position as well. And those are two things usually that means they have a good feel for the game. Those are things that are hard to teach. You can't teach effort and passing is difficult. You can teach passing, but as we've seen with guys like TJ Warren and Kelly Oubre, if you don't have it, you're probably not going to have it uh, at any point (laughs) in your career, at least not at a super high level. And I just feel like guys like that, generally, if you pick them, it's just usually a good pick because they're not ever going to be bad or it's it's rare or it's more rare that they're going to be bad. Yeah. Now, there is a player that we have to talk about <laughs> because people are comparing him to Amari Stoudemire. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah we, we got to talk about this guy. Yeah. And I do think it's a, I do think that if you're a Suns fan, maybe if you're a more casual Suns fan, and I know none of them are listening to this podcast, but <laughs> if you are a more casual Suns fan, you're looking at the Suns and you're saying, okay, Dario Saric is probably gone. That means the biggest hole in the starting lineup, even if you uh, if you like the Mikhail Bridges, uh, Kelly Oubre forward lineup, 
is power forward. And they just sort of look at, well, who's the best power forward, right? Who's the best power forward? Uh, oh, it must be Obi Toppin. He's compared to Amari Stoudemire. Amari Stoudemire, who, by the way, right now would still be a center in the NBA, but, for the record, is technically a power forward when yeah. he was in the NBA. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Obi? Where is he on your list? And do you think that the Suns should take him in that range if, if say, Devin Vassell's off the board, for example, or uh, Tyrese Maxey is off the board? Yeah, so I've seen a lot of those uh, comparisons. <clears throat> this goes back to, like, my... Uh, my whole like philosophy and scouting is like it's really important to watch full games of players because if you're just watching highlights or um, you know just clips and stuff like that then you're going to kind of get the wrong idea of them can I just Uh, quickly interject because it's perfect you said that so I looked up Obi Toppin on YouTube and the top most viewed video for Obi Toppin is a video from ESPN it says quote the title is Obi Toppin's highlights prove he is a top five NBA prospect. <laughs> Jesus. So exactly. that, that's, that's exactly where we're at. Highlights. That's that. all you need. Yep. So continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's very accurate. Um, but I think the thing with him, like he's going to, he's obviously going to be, his offense is something that I don't think anyone's questioning. He's going to be a three level scoring big. Um, I buy the shot and he's a supreme like vertical athlete, like, I mean, you've probably seen some of his dunks, obviously. Uh, He led college basketball in dunks. And, uh, you know, I just like his finishing and his his soft touch, like, around the rim. So I think offensively he's going to add value for sure. Um, But the main question with him is obviously uh, the defense. His It's not just, like – so his lateral movement is – it's, like, painful to watch. Um, He's just kind of, like, hunched over and, like, he just gets lost. His defensive awareness um, is is pretty bad too. So – I think that's going to be something that NBA teams are going to target. And when you have uh, Devin Booker on your roster and you're trying to mask, you know, his defensive deficiencies, you're going to, um, if you take someone like Toppin, then that's just kind of um, adding to the problem. And I don't see that being a very uh, smart long-term investment. Although I do think he's going to be one of those players that he'll put up numbers. And uh, I'm just not sure if the value is going to translate at the level um, you're going to need it to. Do you believe in his jump shot? I do. I, I think he'll actually, I don't think he's going to be like an elite three point shooter or anything like that, but I think he'll be able to at least, uh, you know, hit one every now and then. 68% true shooting is, is pretty fucking nuts. You know, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. really high level. And he put, he put all three of those together. He was hitting his free throws. He was hitting his threes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's the thing, right? So like if the biggest advantage to top in is going to be this explosive athlete who's great in transition and is like a pick and roll scorer, don't I mean the Suns already have that in DeAndre Ayton like DeAndre Ayton's already the finisher of the team and I guess the the defining question for me is like you look at him on paper and and he really does kind of look like Amari Stoudemire in in a lot of ways but is there room in 2020 for a team to have two players at power forward and center uh, who are so reliant on pick and roll finishing as like their mode of offense as their mode of generating offense and if there isn't you know, isn't like if Toppin's only way of succeeding at the next level is to say play up at the five and play small ball. Well, aren't you just telling us, Brandon, that he doesn't have the defensive capabilities to really do that, right? Uh, I actually think he'd be better off playing uh, center on defense. But the issue with that, it, like, it, it's still going to be very bad. Like, he's not strong enough to guard like actual centers, so it's kind of an issue. But as far as like, I just think on the perimeter. Um, in switch situations and just anytime he's, he's on the perimeter, he's going to get completely attacked. And that's, that's something that, um, I, I just, I don't think in today's game that you can rely on. He's like a tweener in like the wrong way. You know, uh, I don't, don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I, I think those that's just one of those guys that cer- a certain kind of Suns fan is going to attach themselves to and then be very disappointed when when if and when the Suns pass up uh, Obi Toppin. So that yeah. that's something that he, we can <laughs> look out for. He's someone that is going. I think uh, team context is going to be very important for him. Like if you plug him next to a center that's like mobile and can you know, switch and kind of cover for him and protect the rim, then uh, then he'll be fine. I just don't like this fit in particular in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, since we already are at 20, almost 25 minutes here, I want to give you a chance of just picking five players that you think could fall in the Suns range that Suns fans who are unfamiliar with these players like me uh, could go on YouTube and watch some highlights of at the very least. And then we'll have you back on, I think, closer to the draft because I think this conversation is going to be ongoing for a while. If you had to pick five, who would? and obviously I think you have two already picked with Tyrese Maxey and Devin Vassell, uh, who else would you pick? Yeah, so Maxey and Vassell. Um, Tyrese Halliburton's another yes, one. Yes, dying yeah, this, to talk about that guy. <laughs> Yeah, this guy is, uh, you know, he's a high-level catch-and-shoot shooter. He's from deep range, too. Uh, just elite court vision and passing. Um, he has his, some deficiencies as well with, uh, you know, he's not going to really be an off-dribble shooting threat. And the weak frame, he really needs to add some, like, muscle. But Seven-foot wingspan, though. Yeah, no, yeah. He's, he's a long boy. Uh, so I think he'll, he would fit right in, uh, you know, get, get, like, one year off the bench behind Rubio and just kind of let him add strength and run the second unit. Um, I think he plays well off the ball too. So, uh, he could help, he would share like playmaking duties with book. Um, another guy, Killian Hayes, huge fan of him. Um, if he's actually there at 10 and the sun's pass on him, I will never forgive them. Um, he's just a sensational <laughs> passer. He hits off a live dribble and you know, he can make passes from all three levels on the court and, uh, go ahead. No, no, I just want to say I can sell Killian Hayes to Mike, even if he doesn't know anything about Killian Hayes, <laughs> with just one comparison. Killian Hayes in 2018, I look back in an interview, um, asked who he models his game after, um, you know, as kind of this lefty, crafty guard. Uh, and he answered with Manu Ginobili. And, oh. you know, I know you love Manu, Mike. So if you're looking for a player like that, I don't think it's actually a perfect c- comparison by any means. But, but that's kind of what he's going for um, as this all-around type guard. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I just I like his combination of just the size and obviously the lefty, as you mentioned, with the whole Manu thing. Um, but yeah, just his ability to score from anywhere on the court and make passes from anywhere on the court with that size is just a very unique combination. Um, he's not super athletic or anything, but I think he's just super crafty and um, shown some step-back shooting ability as well. So there's some flashes where you're like, this guy's going to be really good. And I hope, I hope he's there at 10 and I hope the Suns draft him. But if not, oh, well. Um, and is that four? That I is think four. So, yes. You got one um, more. There's one right. prospect I'm dying to ask you about, but I don't know if you're going to, if you're going to include him here. I'm trying to think. So I would have said uh, Denny, but I think he'll be gone before they pick just based off like NBA. That's what I was, that's what I was going to ask about, but, but choose your fifth first. <laughs> I do want to know about Denny though. Gotcha. Um, I would say someone that the Suns would probably. I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of this fit personally, but he's someone that I could see them taking. It'd be a uh, Cole Anthony out mm-hmm. of UNC. Um, I do like his shooting. I think he's going to be a legitimately good shooter because he has versatility, like on and off the ball, and um, he's a very good rebounder for a point guard. Like the main thing with him is he's not a good passer at all. Like, um, which I mean, if you're a big fan of the whole point book thing, then uh, he could be a good fit offensively. Um, there's questions about his defense, but, um, overall 
he had a really disappointing year at UNC, and it would just be a complete upside play. But um, he's someone I could see James Jones taking. Just he loves ACC players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, what, speaking of which, before I ask you the other question, so let's say the Suns are are drafting at ten, right? Well, last mm-hmm. year they didn't take any of the players at eleven who were projected to go there. Is there a player? Like, you know, 25th to 50th on your mock draft, who you could just see James Jones saying, fuck it, and taking them 10th, who oh, you could yeah. identify. There's, there, there's two of them, actually. I've, I've had this nightmare. It's reoccurring. So um, now these players aren't that bad. It's just not a good value at 10. But I would say uh, Aaron Neesmith from Vanderbilt, he's the best shooter in this class, I would say. But outside of that, like no one knows what else he's going to do pretty well. Um, and a little bit older, too. So it kind of fits that prototype. <laughs> Yep. Um, and then you got Sadiq Bey out of Villanova, who I actually do like him as like a mid to late first round type prospect. But um, if you're taking him 10, that's just a crazy reach. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sam, you got one more question? Yeah, just sell me on Denny real quick because just for the, for the background context, right? Last time the Suns had uh, a forward that they drafted, you know, high from <laughs> Maccabi Tel Aviv. Uh, a foreign player it it didn't work out too well you know and and i i look i try, i try not to rely too much on stats um but especially w- with a guy like denny i haven't seen too much tape and and just looking at the stats uh he i know this this isn't always fair with european players because they you know the the way that you get minutes there is different but he averaged four points two and a half rebounds 1.2 assists per game he shot 44% from the field, 28% from deep. He's being advertised as this 6'9 kind of versatile forward who can has good ball skills and can do things like run the pick and roll. I just feel like I've heard this story before. Um, and I know that's ignorant from me because I'm an ignorant person when it comes to the draft. So so just sell me on why is this not the next Dragon Bender? Yeah, no, that's a very fair concern. Uh, I'm sure a lot of Suns fans will, anytime they see Maccabi, they're going to have like, you know, flashbacks, but, uh, he's a tremendous passer for his size and his court vision's like insane. Um, he moves really well has a plus handle as well. So I think, um, from a fluidity, fluidity standpoint, um, at his size, like he could be like a, a second engine on an offense that just, uh, makes smart decisions. And the main differentiator for me and someone like a dragon bender is, um, he's shown a lot more, uh, flashes of like star potential than dragon ever did. And he, he's super competitive, like, and he gives a damn, like he's got like an edge to him. And I think that's really important as well. Um, you know, he's a hard worker from everything I've, I've read about him. And, um, you know, obviously the poor free throw and three point numbers are worrisome, but you know, he's, he's got really nice mechanics on a shot and that's what it's going to come down to. If that's his swing skill, if he can shoot, he's going to be a really dynamic four, um, small ball four in the NBA today. Um, but if you can't shoot, there's still some value in just his, his playmaking and um, his ability to just, you know, grab the ball and just like lead a transition, uh, stuff like that. All right, that's going to wrap up our draft conversation for now. I think there are, first of all, there's a bunch of players that we didn't really even talk about that we could talk about more in the future. But I think that gives us a good starting point for now. Players to sort of look up online and catch up on for people who are not into it as much. And for people who are, I think you have a good idea of how Brandon feels and then a little bit of an idea about how Sam and I feel. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick break and we're going we're gonna to come back and we're going to talk about this, uh, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary a little bit with Brandon. So we'll be right back. 
With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Go to betonline.ag and use the promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet online, your online wagering solution. Guys, looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds? Go to bluechew.com. Bluechew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. All right, there is sort of one kind of sporting event type thing happening uh, that people are watching on ESPN, and that is The Last Dance, which is a docu-series about Michael Jordan and what was uh, sold to me as uh, a document, um, a documentary about the 97-98 season, which was Michael Jordan's final season as a Chicago Bull and ended up being more of the sort of a retrospective on Michael Jordan's career as a whole. And we're following that now. And I think it's, first of all, I will say just, just right off the top, I think it's very good. I think it's really interesting to watch all this footage. And I think although I was around and watching the NBA at that time, I did not have this level of understanding of the things that were happening in the NBA. And so far, I'm really enjoying it. And I just wanted to take a little bit of time to talk to you guys about it because I know that other people are watching it as well. And it feels almost like sports uh, where we can all kind of have a conversation (laughs) together. Uh, Brandon, I know you're watching. What have you thought about the documentary so far? Oh, I think it's, it's been awesome. It's been a breath of fresh air. Obviously, like the NFL draft was a nice old breather as well. But, um, you know, this this has definitely lived up to the hype, I would say. And I've really enjoyed it. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, you know, as the resident baby of the podcast who doesn't know anything <laughs> about the NBA pre-2000, it's uh, <laughs> I'll echo Brandon's sentiments. It's been a breath of fresh air for two hours uh, each Sunday night to kind of be able to plug on, plug into the Twitter timeline and just see it you know, zipping by as if it's some sort of live game. And, and, you know, that's really nice to see. As for the production itself, really sharply edited. Um, I do feel like, to you know, to talk seriously about it, that I already had a decent amount of knowledge about the guys like Jordan and Pippen, but there are some added perspectives uh, that I'm getting now that I've never seen before. Um, and there are, also some, there are also some missing perspectives here, you know. There are some really interesting storylines that kind of, for obvious reasons... Uh, haven't been fully explored like for me at least in the first four episodes uh, one of the most interesting things is the the looming presence of Jerry Krause hasn't really been explored by this documentary and that's one of the most interesting things there because he's kind of the antagonist to all this 
you know, with, with the way that the players have banded in their message of Kraus breaking up the team. Now, obviously, Kraus is dead, so they can't talk to him. But I do think it would be just a little bit more interesting if they, if they could somehow get someone in Jerry's camp, if such a person out there exists, to explain and flesh out his motives behind doing what he did a little bit more. Because that's <laughs> that's one of the stories that, you know, me as, as a kid, um, I never knew about. Like, I, I just never knew about the backstory behind The Last Dance. And the right. message that we've been given to this point about it is that Jerry had this ego. He didn't want to compete with Michael because because of his ego. He wanted more credit. It's believable to me that that could be the whole story behind it, but it also kind of, like, if this were a movie, I would tell you that that's not a fully three-dimensional, fleshed-out character. So mm-hmm. part of me is just left a little bit unsatisfied with that, just, like, wanting to know if there's if there's really more digging to be done there. You know what's funny? Two, two crazy things about Jerry Krause, I think, that they've covered in this documentary so far. Openly admitting that they were considering trading Scottie Pippen while he was still on the team. Uh, which is nuts. Uh, of course, can you imagine you do Twitter that. back then? But yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do that. Of course, you do that. But like we all know, the song and dance for general managers is to say, "No, we weren't planning on uh, trading Scotty." Not all of, of course us. people. Not, not of course all, people call. Not all general. Ma- not all general managers know that. Well, Ryan McDonough didn't know that. I was going to ask you guys if Jerry Krause is like the original Ryan McDonough with a better draft record. Because in watching watching the old interviews with him, the mannerisms, the cold-hearted kind of calculated way that he maneuvers around these questions from the press, it reminded me so much. It says if Ryan learns, I know Ryan learned from Danny Ainge, but but it almost felt like he learned from Jerry Krause. Like that's his (laughs) idol who he was looking up to, who he was watching. Yes, and but and th- I think you'll like the point I'm going to make here. The other crazy thing that he did uh, was just sort of publicly announcing that it would be the last year that Phil Jackson was going to coach the team, and it made it sort of a public thing, which I thought was vis- just, I mean, what's the point of it other than uh, I guess Phil could say it himself, and then it's out there. But I did notice there was one person in his camp that tried to at least say the good things that he was doing, and that person was... Formal, former general manager of the Phoenix Suns, Steve Kerr. And mm. I just thought it, it was interesting. There were moments where Steve Kerr would say something like, well, you know, to his credit, yada, yada, yada. Or he did this one thing, which I thought was really smart, yada, yada, yada. And all I could picture was Sean Marion just slowly being shipped off to Miami while old man Shaq comes back to Phoenix and Steve Kerr just sort of uh, sort of admitting, hey, the general manager job is hard because he wasn't very good at it. You know, he, he had some one lucky year in that 2010 year, uh, but that was just sort of the last dance of, of Steve Nash, if you will. Uh, and, and I just noticed Steve Kerr is sort of the one guy with general manager experience on that team, as far as I know, uh, besides, of course, Michael Jordan, trying to represent Jerry Krause in a more sympathetic light, at least a little bit. I did want to talk about just sort of the experience watching Michael Jordan as a kid. Now, I'm uh, 33 years old. I was born in 1987. Um, So I was able to see Michael Jordan play live on NBC, which is where games used to play. And I remember watching Michael Jordan. One of the first memories I had was for basketball was the 93 finals. Uh, I was six years old, so it's not like I have these vivid memories of it, but I do remember Michael Jordan feeling like a superhero. And I think that this documentary represents him in an interesting way in that you're sort of able to see his thoughts on things. You're able to see his emotions on things, whether even if 
it's just anger uh, or laughing. I think he's had moments where he seems like kind of a funny guy, which I never really pictured uh, for Michael Jordan. Uh, Brandon, you're a little bit younger than I am. Uh, do you have any memories of watching Michael Jordan live or did you sort of experience it all either on the internet or in highlights on, on ESPN or TV? And, and what is it like watching this documentary for you? Yeah, so I, I do remember uh, vaguely as a kid watching him growing up uh, kind of towards the tail end of his career. Like, uh, obviously it wasn't the same, but I've, I've done, uh, I feel like before this even came out, I had a pretty good understanding of, you know, his greatness. And I've seen a ton of film and, um, you know, the whole IMAX movie that came out, uh, I can't remember what it was called um, back in the day. But, but yeah, it's it's been really cool. I think especially for people that have like no, knowledge firsthand knowledge like the younger generation getting this documentary at this time is, is pretty cool um just because it's it's going to open up some eyes and just kind of put things in perspective and just see a different era of basketball sam you didn't get to see michael jordan at all no. <laughs> really no i did uh, not so what is it like for you do you think do you, does it just feel like old guys reminiscing to you uh well, do you find it interesting no no i certainly find it interesting and and i have the utmost respect for Michael Jordan, the basketball player. Um, and, and I think it's been a really good series. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's my first memories of basketball were from the early 2000s. Uh, I'm from New York, so like the first time I really remember catching an NBA Finals uh, is when the Nets were dominated back-to-back two years in a row. And then obviously a little bit later I started watching the Suns when Steve Nash came to town. But no, watching this has been, I think... The Bulls are a fairly easy team to root for um, back then, coming from my kind of younger perspective. What catches me up a little bit is, and and kind of feels more like just old guys reminiscing about a bunch of random shit, is uh, with the talk about, like, the bad boy Pistons. That's where really the brunt of this argument of, uh, you know, they don't play defense anymore in the NBA today really (laughs) really starts to kind of take a firm hold. And, you know, I'll have you know, like, I'm still going into work every day personally so I, I had a long conversation with an older guy today probably about 50 years old um in my office just talking with with sort of glowing respect for the way that guys like uh, rick mahorn and bill Beer used to play defense for the pistons and you know that if you were going to come in and challenge them they they were just going to hit them you know guys just got hit back then and uh i don't know like just I, I guess it's mostly that kind of mindset uh, that's so foreign to me as someone who's grown up in the age of spacing uh, with the NBA being played the way it is today. Yeah, it's hard to... I still don't really look at that as defense. I, I guess in a sense it is. It's just fouling a I don't guy look at it. My beat. problem with it, and again, this is, you know, it's just a byproduct of the way I was raised playing basketball, but I don't look at it as skill. You know, I don't evaluate it in the same way that I do. You know, there are ways that guys today kind of take advantage of the rules a little bit beyond what they should. You know, Harden's mm. double step back travel or whatever being a prime example of it. The way that guys like Giannis and Harden and even, you know, Curry to some extent too, you know, take advantage of foul rules and really get to the get to the free throw line a lot more than perhaps they should. But it doesn't there's still a certain skill associated with their live ball dribble uh, and their ball handling abilities that just isn't it, I, I don't know. I just don't see the same skill in that level of defense. And, you know, I've been roasted for that opinion before, but I just don't see it no matter how hard I try. That's not to say that those Pistons teams were bad. Um, I think they were very good. I think they're very admirable traits about Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars and, and all the and Dennis Rodman with his rebounding ability. I will say, just a quick side note, you know, 
Dennis Rodman going on that aside, talking about when he was on the Bulls, um, or I don't even remember what era it was, but when he was talking about just taking his teammates into the gym, and um, it was when he was a young kid, I think, and just watching the way the ball comes off the rim um, and, and really learning each player's specific tendencies so that he could become um, such a, an infinitely better rebounder. You know, anecdotes like that are really cool to hear. Um, yeah. But but overall, you know, there's a reason those those Pistons teams are the bad guys. Yeah, I think... I think maybe my favorite part of the documentary so far was the shot of Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman talking on the bench, just strategically talking about when to switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just just because you never really get that kind of footage, you know, the when when ESPN or, or TNT does the sort of huddles, uh, it's always like uh, play hard, uh, make sure to contest that shot. You know, it's never the really interesting strategic stuff because. They don't want to air that. That's just something that's more private for the team. But to see Jordan and Rodman talking through switching late in the shot clock on specific players because of a distinct advantage that they had, that was, I think, one of the more fascinating things that I've seen so far. But I do agree with you. I think here's what I'll say about the Pistons. The Pistons were the best defensive team based on the rules that they had back then. And I think in general and the style of basketball that people played, uh, that made them very good defenders, and that made them excellent at what they were doing. I think that defense now is much harder and takes more skill, just in general, just because of the way that the NBA is played. It's a higher effort uh, type of defense. If you watch, to me, one of the pinnacles of watching a defensive team is the LeBron-era Miami teams because of the high level of effort that they constantly played with. They would ice, as you all know what icing and pick and rolls is, so they would collapse into the paint and then just sprint out on shooters. And basically what they did is maybe not a sound defensive strategy. It's what the Suns did as well, but the high-level athletes that they had, they were capable of running back out to shooters. And that level of effort, when I watch old clips of basketball or even from what I remember of watching basketball – Nothing really happened the way that it happened after that Miami team or after that Boston team, I think, which sort of changed defenses um, just because of the amount of shooters that you shoot now. So it takes so, more effort to cover more more players. So yeah. then the obvious conclusion is you think Draymond Green is a better defender than Dennis Rodman. And I'm going <laughs> to say that you said that online and we're going to see what happens to you. No, I think if Dennis Rodman was placed in today's NBA he would probably be better than Draymond Green. Uh, it's just that within the confines, and this is actually, I'm glad this came up. This is the entire problem with the debate on who the greatest player of all time is because these guys are uh, almost playing different sports. The, mm-hmm. the the way that the game has changed so dramatically in in a long time, it's not like it was a short period of time. It was a relatively long period of time. It's impossible to say who was the greatest. I think Michael Jordan was the greatest player that played in his generation by a lot. I also think that LeBron James is the greatest player that played in his generation by a lot. And if you want to debate which one of those two guys is better all time, there is no answer to that. And I think that's almost why people like this debate because they can choose what their answer is and they can argue it ad infinitum, forever and ever and ever. And that doesn't make it interesting to me in any way. I think what's interesting is learning why these guys dominated in the eras that they did. And, and that's more fun. And I think that's what this, this documentary allows us to do. But Brandon, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on just sort of different eras and even on the LeBron-Jordan debate? Yeah, no, Mike. I think you made a really good point just about comparing different eras like 
Um, anytime you're evaluating a player, I think you have to just keep it strictly in the confines of um, their era. You can't really take them out of that. I don't think it's fair. So um, I like what you alluded to, the saying it's, um, you know, you can't really discredit MJ for playing when he did, and you can't give LeBron credit for playing when he, where he does now. Um, but I will say, though, I think the skill level is dramatically increased, as uh, you guys have alluded to, and just there's more to worry about on the court. Like, you know, back then you don't have to worry about Steph Curry, like pulling up from 40 feet, you know. You're just kind of – I think defense was a little bit um, – I want to say easier because it was a lot more physical, but there was just less to worry about on the court. And I think that's something you have to take into account. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I don't really like comparing eras uh, or players from different eras in totality with like some, you know, definitive statement one way or another. But um, yeah. Two things. One, if either of you guys ran ESPN, if you ran the network, ratings would be... <laughs> abysmal because is it stupid to compare players in different eras yes is it human nature to want to know who the best player uh in the history of the sport is also yes so you know i'm, I'm right there with you guys but i just don't think we're ever gonna get away from that conversation it's gonna continue oh, to yeah, haunt us definitely. for for as long as we live um the second <laughs> thing though you know with your point on skill sets it was getting funny to me because it was like that that fourth episode where they're really starting to talk about phil jackson you could really have invented a drinking game based around the triangle offense and the number of times they start bringing up the triangle and it's something we've heard about a million times but then of course you fast forward 20 years later and phil's trying to institute that same triangle offense into what was at that point a quasi-modern nba uh and it failed uh it, it failed especially with the knicks just a few years ago so you know just more evidence of of, of really of how skilled the the top players in the league are today the types of options that you have to guard and and the level to which offensive schemes have also improved i mean could you even imagine running a triangle offense in today's nba and how many games would it, would you even win if you did that you know could you even possibly build a championship caliber team with that unless you had a team of i guess i don't know lebron Giannis, and harden all on the same all on the same <laughs> roster yeah no that's a really good point i think uh you know obviously teams that win in today's game in any era really is just teams that adapt and that make changes before anyone else does. And that's what the triangle was at the time back then. Um, but now it's just become so redundant and there's so much, uh, there's so many more options that are just more efficient and, uh, get results. So I, I do think it was a pretty foolish to try to bring it in like any sort of modern era of basketball. But, um, at the time it was innovative. And I think, you know, Golden State is like the, a good example now of just, you know, they kind of changed the game. So every generation, there's going to be a team that kind of makes that breakthrough. Um, no idea what the next one's going to be, but looking forward to it. It's the Houston Rockets, right? Houston Rockets. <laughs> they, they push it. To, oh, yeah. They push it to the extreme. Actually, James in a Harden sense, will be think, center by next year. <laughs> I think it's the Bucks. I mean, they play. Nobody really talks about how they play like this analytics basketball, I think, because they have a guy that's just sort of pounding it in the paint. But. They have like seven footers that shoot threes constantly, uh, and and that's that's what it is. I think there is a fun thought experiment though of picturing what Michael Jordan would look like in today's NBA if you did sort of surround him with uh, high level shooters that play defense, which is kind of a newer thing uh, in, in the NBA compared to in the '90s. It's like someone like Steve Kerr. He was he was like a pitch hitter almost. They took him in and out offense defense, and all he did was. Um, shoot and he wasn't really capable of doing a lot else now he was a relatively good ball handler he was good offensively in general but uh it's not like having danny green or 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 somebody like that who can 
play both ends of the ball a little better. You surround him with guys like that. It's it's pretty amazing to picture. And in the same sense, it's actually pretty fascinating to picture LeBron James playing in the 90s where illegal defense existed. You couldn't guard space. Like if you if you can't guard space, that means you can't get to the spot before LeBron James, just period. And and that means that he's getting to the rim as much as he possibly wants. And the Jordan rules are now the LeBron rules. And just picturing a train uh, going down into the paint is kind of a fascinating thing. Now, does that mean that you can rule one way or the other? No, these are just special thought experiments. Nobody can actually decide how good they would be in any era. It's just kind of fun, I think, to think about. Uh, Sam, you have any other thoughts on that documentary? No, that's about it. I'm I'm really excited for episode five and six, though. I'm also curious to see, because Jordan had the opinion that, I think he came out and said something before this aired about how people were going to see him in a bad light after. Um, and I'm wondering if that's kind of just him being overly paranoid about it, because, frankly, he should already know what his reputation is as a person among the public. It's that he's an asshole. Um, but I, I'm wondering if that's coming, <laughs> if that's still we, coming in this Can we talk about how he's the original D'Lo snitch? <laughs> oh, on, I, thought, um, I thought that was funny. On Burrell, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. About the, the alcoholic thing? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. When yeah, he was on camera, he's like, don't say this. My parents are going to watch this. And he's just like... <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the, and yeah, that's, that's, the that's, thing. that's the thing about Jordan. I mean, I know it's apples to oranges, right? But like here he is whining, bitching about Isaiah Thomas, not like, you know, uh, not greeting them at the end of the game um, and talking about sportsmanship. And then, you know, in the, in the same breath, kind of later on the plane, he's calling his teammate an alcoholic. Now, I know it's all in good fun, but but like he, he really you just get the sense that he's going to push people past their limit in a bad way sometimes. And maybe that's competitive spirit. But but you got to wonder if uh, he could have just toned that down a little bit. I don't know. Well, I, yeah. I think they should have re-aired the clip of the person asking him for his autograph after he was complaining about Isaiah Thomas, where he just <laughs> yeah. stared at his assistant like, get this fucker out of my face. I have a question for you guys. And Mike and Sam are not ready for this, so it's off the top <laughs> of the head. Um, if there is someone on the Suns, it could be past or present, that would get the whole Rodman 48 hours in Vegas, who would it be? Oh, past or present? Uh, Gerald Green, if it's past, for sure. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a really interesting. Or question. Michael Beasley. Ooh, yeah. Gerald Green Michael or Mike? Like, who are the biggest wild cards? But Gerald I think, Green. I think the twins would just go together. Well, if I think the twins would go together, see if it was Beasley, they would leave him there. They're they're saying we don't need you know we don't need bees to win. I just feel like Beasley would be like asleep on a couch playing N sixty four, like with the menu of like okay, but Gerald and I just sure. playing over and over. How about PJ Tucker? I mean, yeah, he was super I about that DUI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but PJ should have the common sense, I feel like, to get back. It's just none of them interacted with celebrities in the what like Carmen Electra, that's like I mean, that's pretty amazing. Former son <laughs> he dated Madonna. Robert like, Ori? Yeah, Kelly Oubre needs to step his game up, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean Kelly Oubre would be fascinating if he I would like to see I think more than anything else, the take that I saw on Twitter, which is this entire documentary should be about Dennis Rodman's 48 hours in Las Vegas. That is the correct take because mm-hmm. that would be a more fascinating documentary than anything else made, uh, regardless of what Bill Simmons thinks about that. <laughs> but uh, let's let you go, Brandon. Uh, Sam and I are going to come back and cover some calls and text messages that we received on our Hot Take Hotline. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for talking about this documentary with us and, of course, giving us this introduction to the 2020 NBA draft you have a draft guide that you are uh, actually putting out through the Zona Sports account. Is that right? Yeah, correct. I'm actually working uh, working on a release date, hopefully in early May, uh, for the updated version. So be on the lookout for that. 
Yeah, definitely do that. And if you don't follow him already, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's just at, at AZ Sports Zone on Twitter. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you can check out my work on Bright Side of the Sun as well. Wait, you write for Bright Side of the Sun? That's that's crazy. Yeah. I actually Wait. write for Bright Side of the Sun. I don't I don't know if you knew that. No Although way. not as much these days. Dave is probably going to yell at me. But uh, <laughs> Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. And, and uh, thanks for all you do, man. Some of the best Suns analysis out there. So Appreciate that. Love you guys' pod. Thanks for having me on. So today, Sam and I got a really weird message on our hot take hotline, which was just a picture of an older lady. Uh, <laughs> it, it was clearly, it was clearly a mistake. But what do you it mean? Clearly, a, a mistake. I, I mean, I guess maybe it's possible she's a fan of the podcast. She doesn't fit into our demographics, I don't think. But uh, uh, she did send us a photo, and it reminded me that we have a hot take hotline that we always forget about. So I put it out on Twitter right before we recorded this podcast. I said, hey, if you have anything you want for uh, want us to talk about, you have an hour to send it to us. And we got a few things just to remind the people. 530-433-4368. That's 530-433-4368. That's our phone number. This is a 24-hour-a-day hotline that you can call. Or leave send a us pictures. Send us photos, apparently. Of your grandmother. <laughs> or text yeah you can text us as well and in fact we did get uh we got a few texts thanks to everyone who texted us the funny stuff or the serious stuff it's all good um and we got a question that i wanted to cover a few questions but this one's a text message i'm going to read it out loud it says hey brothers do you guys think we should stick with the starting five from the end of the season if so who should we trade for slash sign and if not like what should we do i think is, is the ending <laughs> of that one um my first thought is, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it quickly. Yes, I desperately want to see that starting lineup for next season. I desperately want to see it. I think that it feels more like a modern team than anything else that we can get. I think that there's there's other possibilities. Aaron Gordon, people are bringing up the possibility of Aaron Gordon. Um, no thanks. I like the idea of Mikhail Bridges and Kelly Oubre a little bit more. Of course, Kelly Oubre is coming back from injury, so it all is sort of dependent on that. But I really liked it a lot, and I would like to see a lot more of it going forward. And if we can figure out the bench, that's a great possibility uh, for me. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with you, man. That that lineup with Kelly at the four worked. It objectively worked statistically, eye test, uh, you name it. And, and we got to keep that together. Uh, unfortunately for Dario, I think his time in Phoenix is more than likely over. He's not a bad player. But going forward, it's all about uh, – it's less about talent on paper – which is, I think, maybe where, where fans and where the Suns themselves have gotten lost a little bit over the past couple of years. And it's more about just optimizing roles. Um, what, the, what the Suns did from 2018 to 2019 is they took all of these skill sets where they were the absolute worst in the league. Shooting, they were the worst in the league. Playmaking, worst in the league. Rebounding. And they made the, the incremental steps um, to basically go from awful to okay. Now what we need to ask them to do again is is find the right role players to go from okay to actually good. You know, Ricky Rubio improved the playmaking to a certain extent. Uh, there's still more work that can be done. Cam Johnson improved the shooting tremendously, but but there's still a lot more work that can be done there as well. Um, and you know, defensively there are improvements that, that can be made too. So um, I've what I will say is I think it's very unlikely. First of all, it's a weak free agency class. I think it's very unlikely that the Suns um, really make a bid for any player to come and 
be instantly slotted into their starting five um, or or potentially they could find a starter but to instantly be one of their core pieces but I think what they could do is use their cap space uh, to find a couple of role players who really are the right fit um, and, and kind of give them the the perfect combination of skills to keep building on what they've already been building yeah I think one of the advantages of that starting lineup is at least four of the five will continue to get better in the NBA, which makes it a viable long-term starting five, regardless of size. And those of you who've listened to this podcast for a long time know that at least I, and then at, at points, Sam, have been asking for that since the beginning of the season. So we're happy to see it, and we'd like to see it more going forward. Let's listen to a voicemail. Mike and Sam, this is Luke. Fellas, I love the podcast. I'm still tuning in, even with no games being played. Uh, my hot take is that uh, if, and I hope we do, if we take a, a point guard um, in this upcoming draft, um, I believe that maybe halfway through the season, in this upcoming season, uh, that point guard will overtake Ricky Rubio in his second contract year. Um, and I think that point guard's going to turn out pretty well for us um, going into Rubio's third year. Uh, maybe that'll be Killian Hayes or possibly Halliburton, but that's a hot take. Keep it the good work, fellas. That is a hot take. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, appreciate it, Luke. Thank you for being a loyal listener, even during these trying times. Hope everything is good with you and your fam. But uh, yeah, no, it is a hot take. And you, you want to know also why it's a hot take is because I guess one of the advantages of there being no basketball right now is Ricky Rubio didn't sustain an injury. But he only played 57 games this year, and he didn't go to the playoffs either. That's a lighter load for a guy who has traditionally had such a heavy load. He also only played, I think, like 30 minutes Okay, he played 32 minutes per game. That's that's not nothing. Um, but l- look, I definitely understand where he's coming from. Uh, Rubio's 29. He's been in the league for a long time at this point, and th- there's definitely potential that he starts to slow down. But given that this was um, likely going to be a shorter season, I am hoping that that's a little bit further out in the future now. You know, I'm hoping he still has one more good year in him, and that maybe his third year of that contract is where we actually start to see the slowdown. And by that point, if the Suns do get Killian Hayes, you heard a little bit about Killian Hayes from Brandon on today's episode, heard a little bit about Halliburton, uh, Cole Anthony, point guard as well. Uh, Lamello? Lamello, obviously, if, if they rise all the way to the top, whoever it may be, hopefully that person would be ready to assume the role um, by year two. That's the thinking. I think that there's no chance that Ricky Rubio would lose his starting uh, spot next season. I think in his third year, I think that's a possibility, especially as he, as he ages, and we'll see how that affects his game. Uh, but he's just paid too much and has too much control based on that uh, going forward. And I also don't think there's really like a John Morant level player here that will make it sort of necessary to uh, start. Uh, and, and if and if there is, then you're right. That hot take is right on. And that would be great for the Suns uh, for that to happen. Well, I yeah, think- yeah. The the obvious guys are Halliburton, Killian, mm-hmm. and Lamelo, just like you said. And if we could take any one of those guys, that would be nice for the bench. And I just want to say nice for the bench for multiple reasons. Obviously, more playmaking, but also more athleticism. The bench was uh, lacking in athleticism sorely, especially when you moved Mikhail Bridges into that starting lineup. Uh, then you have slow guys like uh, Ty Jerome, of course, uh, Eliakobo, who's fast but doesn't really have any sort of like burst or or, or uh, athleticism as far as jumping. Uh, any one of those guys that I think would be a better athlete coming off the bench. So I like that idea. But going forward, if they're good enough to take that starting lineup, that would be a really great situation for us. It would be an amazing situation. But but practically speaking, you look at a guy like Killian Hayes or Tyrese Halliburton, um, where playmaking is such a focal point of why they're 
uh, highly touted prospects in the first place, who better to learn from for those guys than taking a little bit more of a passive role in year one and learning behind Ricky Rubio? It just makes too much sense to stick them in the second unit in that situation. Um, but look, if they overtake Ricky Rubio in, in year one, uh, then they probably look like a future all-star for sure. So that would be really good news for us. Or the team's us. really bad. Or the team is really <laughs> bad, and Ricky Rubio yeah. just lost all of his basketball talent, which yeah. would suck. All right, one more, and this is an interesting one, I think. Hey, Mike and Sam, I want to know if the Suns run it back next year by re-signing Baines and Saric and keep the same team plus their draft pick. What's their record going to be? Are they going to be better? Or are they going to be about the same? Uh, interesting question there. Re-signing Baines and Sarge. Here's one thing I will say. The Suns will have to get a really great backup center to make losing Baines worthwhile. He's clearly a great piece for this team on the court, much better than any of us could have anticipated. He appears to be an excellent uh, mentor off the court for DeAndre Ayton. I understand that he's a perfect piece for any contender, and if those contenders come calling, if he's willing to take less money to play on a contender, he's gone. But if it takes a little bit extra money for the Suns to keep him, I think it's worthwhile, especially because I don't really see any big-name free agent that's going to eat up the entirety of the Suns' cap space going forward. I would like to keep Baines. Saric is gone. I think he's gone. I I just don't think he's a starting player on the Suns. He's going to look for a starting position. If he can't find it, he's not going to come crawling back to the team to take a backup uh, big position on the Suns. I think he's going to go somewhere else and try something new. Especially one where he like sporadically plays 14 minutes a game. (laughs) You know, like they they really kind of, I don't know if I'd go so far as saying mistreated Saric this year, but they had no fucking clue how to use him. Well, it's tough for a guy in a contract year to not have a consistent role. Will the team be better if they just re-signed everybody and went forward with that team? I do think they would be. DeAndre Ayton's going to get better. Devin Booker's likely going to get better. We know for sure Mikhail Bridges is going to get better. Depending on Kelly Oubre's injury, he has the drive to get better, so I do believe that he could get better as well, although he had an excellent season for him. And if he, even if he played at that same level, based on his injury history, that would be a huge success for somebody like Kelly Oubre. I do think they would be better, but it would be incrementally. I don't think that's enough to make the playoffs. They need to drastically improve the backup playmaker position in order for them to be in a position to make the playoffs if nothing else changed. Yeah, I'm right. I'm right there with you. They were on pace for 33 wins. Uh, maybe they get up to 37. I don't know. I mean, I think Aiton... I think Aiton's going to be the big guy. I think he has the potential out of anyone I can point at on this on this roster, uh, where I was so impressed by his defensive jump from year one to two, and I know it was only a 30-game sample size, but he really has the potential to come back next year and drop you know, 22 and 12 and two blocks a game with legitimately game-changing defense uh, every night. That would be huge for the Suns. It would make him a bonafide star, potentially an all-star as early as, as his third season in the league. Um, everyone else... They're going to make incremental improvements too, but the Suns ultimately aren't going to get anywhere without a little more self-creation. We can't have a repeat of this year where Devin Booker goes to the bench and Ricky Rubio just can't handle it by himself or vice versa when Ricky Rubio goes to the bench and uh, the backup point guard situation is just drastically bad. Um, we, we need more self-creation. doesn't matter what position that's out of. That could be a, you know, a two, a three, a four, and we need a, a more competent backup playmaker uh, to go behind Rubio. That's right. Thank you to everyone who sent us questions or voicemails. 530-433-4368. Anytime, 24-7. Send us 
a text message, send us a photo of your grandmother, send us a funny meme, leave us a voicemail with a question for the podcast. Uh, it makes us it makes us a lot easier for us. Hey Sam, do you want to do an episode next week? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's All right, do an we'll be back next week uh, in a week. Thank thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. We will talk to you later. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.